0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, uh, CMG. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He is the author of over 150 books, and he is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. And today we are speaking about his uh, book A History of Britain 1945 to Brexit. Welcome Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
2: Well, it's an attempt to look at British history from 45 to Brexit without uh, feeling that any particular trajectory was inevitable. It's an attempt to give due weight Uh, to the economic, environmental, social, and cultural history of the country, as well as to its political uh, developments, both domestic and foreign.
0: Can you tell us a little bit of how you structure the book? The book is uh, not structured in a strict chronological order.
2: No, it's not structured in a strict chronological order. Um, It's structured uh, environment first, then economy, then society, then culture, Um, Then it's structured in terms of four chapters on politics, uh, dividing at 1960, 1979 and 1990. Then it looks at British issues, in other words, relations between England, Scotland, uh, Ireland and Wales. And then it looks at European and world questions. And lastly, it considers the future.
0: Professor, how much of a percentage increase was there in the UK population in the nineteen forty-five to nineteen eighty-nine period, as opposed to the nineteen ninety to two thousand sixteen period?
2: Well, you very much put your finger on one of the drivers that I think uh, we can fairly say, to my mind, is very, very significant. i uh, I actually think that you know the the tendency to underplay um, the human and physical environment is not very helpful and partly because people have become very worried about being accused of racism though of course uh, population movements are as much of people uh, who are whatever you mean by white as whatever you mean by non-white um, people won't really or don't aren't clean to discuss it but essentially the UK population that's that of Uh, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland rose from 50.2 million in 1945 uh, to 65.1 million uh, by mid-2015. And if you look at the population of England, the Office for National Statistics is suggesting a population by 2024 of 58.4 million and by 2039 of 63.3 million. Now, obviously, if you think of that in terms of then the impact on the physical environment of the country, which is one of the things I discuss in the book, um, it's very considerable. Um, you know, a considerably greater area is built up every year and indeed. Um, this book, the the current government, the government of Johnson, is uh, seeing the building of new houses as a way to help get the country out of uh, the COVID recession, which may or may not be the case, but certainly have uh, very environmental consequences.
0: And uh, would it be correct to say that uh, the majority? or plurality of that increase is the result of uh, uh, particularly in the, I suppose, the 1990 to 2016 period uh, a massive increase in uh, third world immigration to the UK?
2: Um, That's one significant increase, but it's not the only one. Um, There was also as a result of a sort of very much an open borders policy towards European Union expansion, a very significant increase in population from Eastern Europe, uh, more particularly uh, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and Slovakia. And that uh, that was a, a very major strand. And also, I think it's fair to say that there are um, significant um, populations uh, which have increased in recent years from countries such as Portugal, uh, Italy, um, um, uh, from the Middle East, uh, from the United States. Um, it, it's increasingly uh, a very diverse population mix. And this co- has caused issues in terms of what one means by Britishness and also how one um, uh, sort of deals with the, the, the problems of living in a society in which not everybody is willing to accept um the existing uh, legal ta- patterns, for example, on education for women, um, uh, attitudes towards homosexuals, um, so that you have, for example, some ethnic minority groups which can be quite, um, very much, uh, be at times uh, intolerant towards other sections of the community.
0: Uh, and in fact, uh, being completely unwilling in some instances not by all means all of them, obviously, but in some instances completely willing, unwilling to abide by cultural norms of the pre-existing population.
2: Yes, I think that's a very fair statement.
0: Uh, in your discussion of the topic of energy, you make reference to the fact that uh, in the future, the UK is very much dependent upon investments by Chinese and French state-owned companies. Does not that, uh, in this fact, make nonsense of the concept of Brexit insofar as Brexit means, quote, taking back control, unquote?
2: Well, it's not my purpose to get involved in a program about Brexit. I'm very happy to do one with you if you'd like to discuss it. I think um, that the uh contrast would be um, between being part of a um, multinational, um, uh, increasingly federalist political entity which is, I think, um, what one might say of the European Union, whether you support it or, or don't support it, um, and uh, decisions made in specific areas of policy. Uh, made by a national government of its own volition. Now you're absolutely correct if you point out that the nature of the world economy, world uh, security issues, is such that um, no state of the type of Britain is uh, has uh, is without dependencies on others. Um, I suppose what one might say is there's a difference between those dependencies that you might willingly accept uh, as on a, an a ad hoc basis and those that you might think of as systemic.
0: Yes, and in fact, uh, you hit the nail on the head in some ways. Uh, in a memorandum in, I think, 1960 or 61, the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Kilmer, pointed out uh, to the cabinet that uh, uh, by acceding to the then common market, uh, there would be a transfer of sovereignty, which is over and above the normative transfer of sovereignty when a treaty is signed between one um, state entity and another.
2: Yes, and I mean, you know, I mean um, I, listeners will have their own views on this matter, but one of the things that um, I think was rather striking about the debate on uh, at the time of the referendum in 2016 is that those people that wanted to remain in the European Union primarily did so for prudential reasons, uh, often focused on their concern about what departure would mean for Britain, particularly economically. I think it would be fair to say that there was relatively little um of a positive enthusiasm for the European Union, there was a sense that um this might or must be a better uh, thing to do rather than um oh God, thank God we're all Europeans now obviously, there were some people who took that latter view, and you know that 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 is a strand. Um, But it was very striking to me. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm of an age, I'm afraid, when I had the vote in the first referendum, uh, which was on, as you know, in 1975 on remaining in the European Union. And um, I think it's fair to say that um, at that stage, there was um, a greater degree of positive enthusiasm on the part of the supporters of it rather than Uh, this prudentialism which one sees now.
0: How did the nature and understanding of class and class identity change in the post-1945 period?
2: Well, i devoted quite a lot of attention to that. I mean, class, of course, is both a slippery um, concept um, in the sense that you might well have in the same family unit, people who you could consider as of different classes in terms of their uh, wealth or their occupation. You might well find that the same individual has moved through different classes in their own lifetime, so that in some respects it's a very slippery concept. On the other hand, I think it is the case that the way in which since the 1960s in particular with the fashion almost obsession in the case of some commentators with issues of identity to do with gender and sexuality ethnicity and so on people have often as a result of that um, failed to consider the differential nature of Social opportunity, social capital, if you like, um, and the consequent of that might have. And I think it's very striking that um, the last Prime Minister, Theresa May, very much focused on the travails of white working class men and argued that they had done particularly badly. And that was again a theme that the current Prime Minister has has also advanced. And I think it is the case that what is really ironic is that the party that traditionally stood for the working class, which was the Labour Party, the party of the left, to a considerable extent threw that away with its obsession with identity politics. Now, it may well... Um, turn back in the direction of uh, an engagement with the working class. But at the present moment, it's, you know, this fascination um, with, I don't know, people of transsexual behaviour or uh, or people who are concerned with um, arguing that we should take down statues or whatever. Um, the notions that those are in some way more important than... Um, than the actual grave difficulties that many people have in communities where immiseration seems to be a matter for much of the population of different generations. Um, I, I think that that is very noticeable, and I suspect, I'm always interested when I write history, to think what historians of the future would make, both in looking back to the present, but also in looking at my work as a, Scholar of the present moment and saying, well, what did he put a great weight on? What did he not put a weight on? I therefore, in this book, tried to discuss social structure, social mobility, what we talk about in terms of class, because I do think these are very important. And I do think many modern historians, and I would say the same thing about your country, the United States, many modern modern historians seem more fascinated by these issues of discourse and identity than about the nuts and bolts of what actually is the life and life experiences of the vast bulk of the population.
0: Can you explain the decline of cricket in the post-1945 period and in particular after 1979?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, decline of cricket is an interesting one. What I think you could fairly say is that football, to an enormous extent, took over the sporting world for most people. Uh, I think partly it was to do with um, the contracts with the television companies uh, and the fact that it was covered on television much more so than any other sport. Uh, partly it was to do with the success of football at um, operating as both a working class sport, but also attracting um both domestic and international investment and a tranche of middle-class following. And other um, sports which had hitherto uh, had a considerable national following uh, became... Uh, to a degree more niche. Now, Um, I mean, a classic example of that was rowing. You know, uh, that became much more a minority uh, following with newspapers devoting far less attention to that than they had done in, say, the 20s and 30s. Uh, Cricket, I would say, um, was hit in part by uh, a lack of interest at the school level. Many schools tend to... uh, uh chose to see it as elitist which it isn't um i think a, a lack of um big money investment um the difficulty actually at uh, often getting it to work on television i mean if you've ever seen a cricket match you will know that the ball travels at a very fast um speed and it is not easy unless you're sitting in the right position to see it going and i can tell you that i mean uh, the first county uh, county match i saw i was amazed at how fast uh, things were going on um but it is certainly the case that if you've been to say a baseball match in the states as i've been fortunate to do and you've been to a cricket match in britain the baseball match Tends to be one which is resting on a broader tranche of society, um, but on the other hand, there are many enthusiastic followers of cricket today, uh, particularly in England, and also it has the great strength that it is a global sport i mean it's very popular in the west indies um in Australasia, and in South Asia.
0: How do you explain the paradox uh, of the fact that the British, as you say became much more open to foreign influences in the post-1945 period, I suppose actually in particular the post-1960 period, and yet, oddly enough, became much less likely, at least as a percentage um, of the population, to speak foreign languages.
2: Well, I suppose the the British like the Americans dare I say, have the great advantage that English is a universal language. And I think that's very important. And it's also important that the media that the British watch, much of which is of American provenance, though a lot of it's British provenance, um, is in English. I think that's very, very significant. Um, Again, I think um, one could look at failing school system, but also... um, You know, um, how should one say this? One doesn't want to be unpopular more than usual. But um, I've often thought that uh, learning a language is hard and that you often require parents to encourage children to, to work at it. And I think it's fair to say, Charles, that since the 1960s, that has become a much less common feature of British society and it's no accident that some of the groups who are best at languages are groups who are immigrant groups who have actually had to engage with learning English whereas often the domestic population has found that much harder because they can't be bothered um and you know whenever People often say to me uh, how terrible the young are, by which they mean the generation I used to teach. I've now retired. And I always say to them, well, blame their parents. Um, the, so I think that there is a degree of narcissism among the young, of not with being keen to do things that aren't of interest to them. But I think in part, you have to look at how their parents uh, don't encourage them in a certain direction. It's not one of more.
0: I'm sorry. In your discussion of the labor government of 1945 to 1951, would it be correct to say that you agree with uh, the commentator and um, historian Corelli Barnett uh, in his less than positive uh, view of that government and its policies, particularly nationalization? And if so, why do you agree with him?
2: Yes, I mean, I'm, I wasn't dependent on that for, for advancing my arguments, but you're absolutely correct. I feel uh, that the current sort of view that uh, you see this, for example, in Peter hennessy's work, um, that uh, that Attlee was this great figure and that... Um, the kind of socialist status system of the late 40s was absolutely fundamentally a good thing. I, I think that's deeply, deeply problematic. I think it's deeply problematic both on the international level that Britain in many senses embraced a role which it could no longer afford, but also more seriously on the domestic level, it uh, was part of an obsession with state control and state centralisation Um, And I think that that squeezed out much of the voluntary sector in social welfare, uh, health and care for the elderly. Um, It led to an overly um, powerful central government and it led to uh, very poor investment choices. And it also contributed to a degree of corporatism that helped trade unions to become too powerful and that then caused a major problems in the 50s and more particularly the 60s and 70s and into the 80s so yes i would actually say and as you know most academics are on the left i'm not a left-wing figure but i would say that that the uh, the confidence that most academics feel in Atlee reflects more on their own suppositions than it does about a measured thoughtfulness about what has happened in Britain since 1945.
0: Or in fact is it merely the case that most of the academics K.O. Morgan, uh, Hennessy, etc. who look at this uh, period and give uh, the Labour government and Attlee in particular high marks are political rather than economic historians?
2: Well I think that's definitely the case. I mean I mean, I think Morgan's rather overrated. He's very much a man of a certain kind of um, Labour academic politics, which did him very well. He's ended up in the House of Lords, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that I don't really think that uh, even today that much of his scholarship um, is more than of almost antiquarian interest. I don't think it offers a measured account of the economic Um, difficulties and issues created by uh, the centralization and state control and the assumptions about what could happen I know of the late 40s on I mean I think these are profoundly statist people and they assume that the State has all the answers, although ironically of course <laughs> it tends to only be the case when it 's the state dishing up the answers that they want um, and I think that you know the the possibility the that differing uh, means of organization uh, including if we were to just look at you know since people don 't like looking at ones that are non european many of them are uh, sort of almost seem viscerally anti american but if you are thinking for example a uh, um social welfare on the french system um if you're thinking about a uh the, the pattern uh, of um a more prudentialist uh attitude towards international relations um i think that there is quite a lot of flaws in the actly government but i as as you are implying uh, there does seem to be an orthodoxy in the other direction. And then, of course, they all review each other's books favorably. They all say how they all back each other for things like the British Academy and all the rest of it. And they become the orthodoxy and the norm.
0: In his recent book, Winds of Change, uh, Hennessy makes reference to the following fact, that it was the French state economic planning model which attracted a lot of uh, attention, and to some extent, some extent, amelioration, um in the UK. The UK governing class, even the Conservatives in the Macmillan period, rather than the less statist uh, German social market Verschaft model. Well, how do you explain this? Um, how do you explain this?
2: Well, that's certainly the correct. I mean, this is no news i mean everybody i think who's looked at um, macmillan policies know that uh, he became worried anxious i think is a fair comment about um, the degree to which uh, the british economy didn't seem to be doing very well um, in the late 50s and early 60s and sort of embraced economic planning um, as a response and i think in part that is because um, Macmillan um, was in his own way a statist, and um, he had overcome his op- opponents, notably uh, Peter Thornicroft, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he very much um, wanted a kind of vision of um Conservatism, that one nation conservatism, that he felt um, was best uh, taken forward by the National Economic Development Council, which was established in 1962. Now, I think at the with the benefit of hindsight, but people at the time, you know, did did warn about this, uh, it can be seen that there was, again, too much of a a state centralization, not enough confidence in the the market. And I think that that did have a lot of consequences.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Uh, is it one of the other paradoxes of this period in English, I'm sorry, British history, the fact that while the governing class in the UK has become much more similar to the population at large, I suppose you can say much more demotic, uh, that has not resulted in an increase in political legitimacy of that class. In fact, the converse, so if one compares, say, the 1950 election, if you're looking at the top five in each party, one notices immediately how if you want to use employ this particular expression, archaic is the social class backgrounds of the two parties, um, Churchill, Eden, Salisbury, Stanley, and I suppose um, uh, Butler for the conservatives, four of the five coming from the old uh, aristocratic, if you like, governing class. In the case of the Labour Party, Atlee... Cripps, Dalton, Bevin, and uh, Morrison, three of the five uh, coming from the uh, old, middle-class, privately educated, public school, Oxbridge uh, backgrounds. But that change so that the current governing class is much more similar to the population at large has not led to an increase in political legitimacy. I think actually, correct me if I'm wrong, the 50 and 51 elections, uh, both parties garnered the most percentage of votes from the uh, voting uh, population that has ever been the case in UK history, as well as the highest turnout in UK history.
2: Well, that's very interesting, Charles. I mean, I'm not quite sure how we would measure political legitimacy, but can I just, and we can come back onto that. Can we? Can I just say this point about? Uh, political class um, first of all yes and no the conservatives are less of an aristocratic party though on the other hand the very high uh, representation of old Etonians is quite eye opening at the over the last uh, 10 years um, but the conserv- the average conservative MP now has not necessarily been to a a boarding school and isn't necessarily somebody of an affluent background so to that extent there has been a change um but i would say that there is a broader lack of realism going back to what looping back to what we were talking about earlier if you look at both the conservatives and Labour and indeed Liberal Democrats, Scottish Nationalists and all the rest, the people that run them are overwhelmingly people who have not worked in the sense that they've often gone straight into politics or a sort of Uh, semi-political job you know research assistant for some political party or for the BBC or something like that Um, and these people are very little representation of um, the group we were talking about earlier the um, industrial working class now that's a smaller percentage of the population than it used to be but if you were looking at um, a, a notion of representation then I think you could fairly say that neither political party is particularly representative and the last general election which had Mr Corbyn and Mr Johnson I would say they were a parody in their own way um, of, of uh, the way in which uh, democracy in Britain is not particularly representative, particularly, I thought, Mr. Corbyn, uh, who, as an example of the uh, Workers' Party, was almost an absolute joke. Um, the uh, Now, if you are then looking at this wider question of, of legitimacy, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Some years ago, I wrote a book on whether... Britain was governable and I wrote it in the after, aftermath of the lorry driver's strike at the beginning of the, of the century. Um, it was a period when the Prime Minister was Tony Blair who had a very strong parliamentary majority but in a particular issue it was very clear that he could not prevail um, but against what in effect was Ill- illegality uh, and I was interested in this question as to whether um, the country is less and less governable and I would say that there are, there is an extent to which that, that is the case today that notions of order, deference uh, acceptance that democracy means the legitimacy of at the other side, if they've got um, a, a more, you know, sort of the parliamentary majority, uh, rule of law and uh, an acceptance, uh, the acceptance of property rights. I think that there are fewer people that accept these uh, than um, would have been the case 20, 30 years ago. And there also have been, um, how should one put it, uh, changes in the habits of behavior i mean the mass national hysteria um uh, which of course didn't involve everybody but involved a lot of people when princess diana died um in 1997 uh, was very different to what you would have anticipated um uh, 30 years before that um so I think that the there have been changes. I think it's not easy for politicians to respond to changes, but it doesn't help matters that so many of them come from the same coteries. And I would suggest to you that this is as typical of the Labour Party as it is of the Conservatives.
0: Well, I, I would agree with you. Well I suppose the point I was making is that... Um particularly in the late 50s, early to mid 60s, there was this discourse. I suppose the best examples are the Samson original Anatomy of Britain and the articles, uh, I'm not sure whether they ever came up into a book form by Perry Anderson and Tom Nair in the New Left Review, The Origins of the Present Crisis. Both arguments, and there were other people making the same arguments at the time, were that in terms of its uh, social class background Britain and education Britain had an archaic governing class and which was not representative of the population in in those terms and that once uh, that changed there would be a change in terms of positive change not only in terms of political legitimacy but also in terms of governance and well let
2: me put it to you uh, yeah. Charles, let me put it to you. The exact opposite has happened. I would say fewer people today have any understand on, uh, any understanding of notions such as return on capital, uh, what profit means, how an economy works. Um, I would actually say that um, the, uh, you know, S- Samson, Nen and Anderson, of course, got it completely wrong because they were obsessed with class as opposed to economics Um, And you have a situation at the present moment, I I would say, in which there is among a wide tranche of those who wield authority, an assumption that somebody else should pay for things and that they have the great legitimacy of their own conceit.
0: Uh, Was there, in fact, such a thing as the buttskill consensus in the 1950 to 1970 period?
2: Well, as you know, I discussed that in the book, and I think there both was and there wasn't. There were some aspects in which uh, there were uh, similarities between the Conservatives and the Labour governments. I mean, not least, for example, over foreign and defence policy, support for NATO, the retention of the atom bomb, opposition to the Soviet Union, uh, backing for managed change in the maintenance of empire. But there were also, I would suggest, uh, major differences in the tone, the content, and the direction of policy. Um, Labour was too much in the pocket of the trade unions to develop in a social democratic direction. And I think the, um, the conservatives, although by no means uh, developing in as... Uh, uh, pro-business of fashion as you were to see under uh, uh, Margaret uh, Thatcher. Uh, were not um, as close to the Labour economic model. And it's an interesting question as to what would have happened. I mean, it is a counterfactual that has been raised. I discuss that in my counterfactual book, as to what would have happened if Labour had won the 51 election and whether it would, how society would have gone. And I remember Tony Wedgwood-Ben, who was a a prominent left-wing Labour person. I remember him at a gathering I was at, saying that, of course, um, in his view, um, socialism in Britain was impossible once you had commercial television, in other television with advertisements, which came in as a result of Conservative Party policy in the mid-50s. And what he was focusing on is what he did see as a difference between uh, the Conservatives and, uh, and, the, um, and, the, and the Labour Party. I mean, I think, you know, the classic thing is that Labour preferred collectivist solutions and was therefore happier to advocate a a leading and controlling role for the state, Um, whereas the Conservatives tended to favour individual liberty and and low taxation.
0: How popular, how much by way of uh, political pressure uh, was uh, there uh, mandating uh, the... uh, reforms that Roy Jenkins put through when he was home uh, secretary under Wilson in the mid-1960s. Was there a lot of demand in the Labor Party, both at large as well as in Parliament, uh, for these reforms? Or was it the fact that Jenkins just put something through on his own wicket?
2: Well, I I would go halfway between those um, classic English remark, I suppose. Um, I think it, first of all that the, the as far as the wider popularity in society is concerned, big question mark. Um, public opinion polls ind- uh, indicated very limited popularity for abolishing the death penalty, for example, for the crime of murder. Um, and, um, I think there's no accident that Jenkins, uh, was not a, uh, really by temperament a Democrat. I mean, he was a sort of, um, he used socialism as an, as a sort of way to keep himself in power, privilege, and women.
0: Um, now, um, particularly he, upper class women.
2: Particularly upper-class women, and if you want to take it a stage further, you will notice that he was a patron of a number of historians who subsequently have written up um, his tradition and his tranche of British history of that period. And you can ask some interesting questions about that. But let's leave that aside for the present moment. Um, the If you're thinking about uh, whether... It was just Jenkins. The answer is no. There was a tranche within the Labour Party. I mean, obviously, it, it, it varied by issue. So, for example, if you're thinking of abortion, there was a tradition, particularly among Catholic uh, working-class NTs uh, uh, who were very opposed uh, Labour um, uh, some of whom were, you know, Irish or sat for constituencies in which there were a lot of uh, Irish Irish people in Britain. That is, um, uh, were not very keen about them at all. And I think it's fair to say that there were some aspects of the policies that were not. Uh, Popular even within uh, the full range of the Parliamentary Labour Party, but there was enough support there. And the other, the reality is, of course, that um, you know in Britain, uh, once, a, um, particularly in that period where you had relatively—I wouldn't push it too far—but greater greater political cohesion within political parties. Once, you're in, once your party is running a ministry, that ministry, under if it's got a powerful minister in charge, they can generally push through the, the legislation. I shall tell you a story about Jenkins which will amuse you or may not amuse you. I remember reading in the magazine Private Eye a wonderful satirical English magazine which tells you lots about the corruption of British politics, unfortunately, it underwrites it. There's much more to talk about, but it once referred to Jenkins stopping the Hollyhead Express, which was a very major uh, train, because at an unscheduled stop because he wanted to get on uh, to get on a, a train, and uh, I thought that was actually remarkable. So I decided I would see if I could actually do that <laughs> and persuade a train um, to stop at a place it shouldn't, and uh, and I managed to do so. So I I actually, and I remember one of my colleagues uh, who, I mean, I was traveling second, he was going first, complaining bitterly to me that the train had stopped and wasted several minutes slowing down at this particular stop uh, to let just, as he put it, some idiot get off. And I didn't (laughs) think I could, I didn't think I could tell him that I was doing it just to see if it was possible.
0: Jeremy, I won't give you away. Thank you. (laughs) Jeremy, you dedicate the book to the well-known writer and historian Dr. Anthony Selden. Now, one of uh, Dr. Selden's uh, better-known books is titled The Governing Performance, which, I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he co-wrote with uh, Hene- uh, Dr. Hennessey, or I should say actually Lord Hennessey. Um, using that um, uh, point of view, who, to your mind, would you rate as the top five Uh, Prime Ministers and governments in the period covered by your book?
2: Well, there have not been all that many uh, governments in that period. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'd find it easier to go right back to 1742. I once gave a lecture at number 10 and I was asked to name the Three best and three worst prime ministers, and I had a shot at that. Um, but if you're looking at just the period after 45, it's it's a pretty disappointing uh, um, sort of situation. Attlee took the country in the uh, wrong direction. Churchill, Eden, and Macmillan obsessed with foreign policy and didn't. Uh, play enough attention to domestic situation. Douglas Hume was in for too short a period to do very much. Uh, Wilson was a rather corrupt and corrupting individual, rather lazy individual, Um, a classic example of why you shouldn't put very bright people into positions of prime minister, you might think. Callaghan, actually, who was prime minister in the late 70s, Labour prime minister then, was pretty well the only prime minister who was more interested in Consett, which is a run-down British steel town than Cape Town. Um, and, you know, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done if he'd um, been re-elected in 79. So I actually have quite a lot of respect for Callaghan. And of course, he had as well had the experience of being, of holding the great offices of state. Uh, he was an experienced politician. So Callaghan, I think I would say, was the best of the Labour uh, prime ministers. Um, Mrs Thatcher, well, Mrs Thatcher was uh, enormously important in uh, standing firm against um, both um, the, as it were, resurgent uh, communism in the early 1980s, during the, the sort of last peak of the Cold War in that period, as well as against the anarchic trade union movement in the shape of the National Union of Miners. Less positively, I would say she failed, despite having very secure parliamentary majorities at dealing with a lot of issues. Uh, that she could possibly have devoted some of her political capital to dealing with. So I would say uh, Mrs. Thatcher was a good prime minister but had failings. Um, after her, uh, John Major. I mean, he managed, I think John Major is usually held up to be a total disaster, but ironically, he did very well in the 92 general election in terms of the percentage of the vote and actually served seven years, which is more than many people who are often held up to be better. But it has to be said that there was, by his later years, a sense of a complete failure of the political system. Uh, Blair was a spiv. He helped to uh, completely mess up the British question in terms of um, Scotland and Wales. Um, he was very foolish and feckless in foreign policy. Uh, and, um, you know, at a time, he sort of, again, blew the opportunities of doing um, quite a lot of good, which he could have done, given his parliamentary majorities. Um Gordon Brown, I'm not tremendously impressed with, I have to say. Um, I think he um, was an individual who, I mean, the best thing he did was keep Britain out of the euro, which, of course, he did as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, But I don't think he um, deserves his reputation for opening the, the money bags completely in the 2008 recession. Cameron, another sort of rather vapid character, a sort of Tory version of Blair, uh, feckless... Um and the hilarious thing about a bad at foreign policy, like Blair is Libya, for example. The hilarious thing about him is, you know, you don't expect politicians to be good at very much, but you do expect them to be good at politics. And I mean, whether you think it was a good or a bad thing over uh, uh, Brexit, he certainly didn't work out what was going to happen. And he got that one disastrously wrong. Um, Theresa May, somebody of great integrity. um given a very difficult uh, wicket. Um, and sorry, your question about cricket has obviously had an effect <laughs> on me. I, I guess, Theresa May is somebody of great integrity. Um, I suspect a lot of parliamentary party didn't like her. And I think that the ironically, she managed to both get a very large vote in the general election in terms of the votes, not the seats, and also managed to negotiate an agreement with the European Union. And despite that, uh, they got rid of her. And Johnson, um, well, you know, fighting a general election against Jeremy Corbyn um, was not exactly the hardest of tasks. He did that well, but he has not uh, been a brilliant success since. So, no, I don't think I can find <laughs> five prime ministers. That, I mean, certainly compared to the caliber of, shall we say, a William Pitt the Younger um, or the wartime Churchill. No, I'm not talking about the peacetime Churchill or a uh, great prime minister like Sir Robert Walpole, the Marcus of Salisbury, um Uh, Peel, compared to them, I think the only one who really comes close is Thatcher.
0: Was there, in fact, as uh, stated subsequently by Sir Solly Zuckerman, um, one time chief scientific advisor to the government, a plot to oust uh, Harold Wilson uh, uh, run up by uh, Cecil King Uh, I should say, Cecil King, circa 1968.
2: Right. Well, as you know, because I hope you've read the book, you will know that in my book, unusually among most histories of Britain, I actually do give due weight to the intelligence side and to the extent to which there is and has been foreign intervention in British politics, exactly what you'd expect. I mean, in the case of the Cecil King thing, we're not talking about foreign intervention. So I am very, I I think a lot of, and you were referring to some of the historians earlier, a lot of the work on British political history is extraordinarily naive because it tends to leave out the intelligence agencies of Britain and foreign powers. Now, in the case of the Wilson government, there was several things going on. Um, and there's only so much that we've got time to talk about. Um, First of all, there was a group within the intelligence services that regarded Wilson as unsound. One or two people thought that uh, he had been compromised when he went to the Soviet Union uh, as President of the Board of Trade. Um, Other people thought that uh, he'd been compromised subsequently and were also very concerned about some of his chums and their um, links with Eastern Europe. So there is a tranche there, which was an issue already before Wilson became prime minister. And that gathered pace during the Wilson period. But that, of course, is not the direct point that uh, Zuckerman is talking about. He is talking about the Cecil King, Mountbatten, um, Sterling, group who essentially argued that the country was in a mess and that it needed the equivalent of a de Gaulle figure and that it needed the equivalent of what had happened in France with the fall of the Fourth Republic and and its replacement by the Fifth Republic. So in other words, a stronger state. And they were particularly motivated by Wilson's uh, failures to address Uh, the sort of repeated trade union disputes, his seeming inability to get a grip on the situation, uh, the crises, of course, to do with public finances, and a related drift in foreign policy. Um, So those factors all played a role. But it seems to be generally agreed that um, there was not a sufficient shove to take the discussions about the need to replace Wilson, if necessary, by a, as it were, what the Spaniards in the 19th century would have thought of as a pronouncement, sort of, um, uh, you know, a sort of um, uh, sort of demonstration of force. Military Yeah, demonstration of force. I was thinking about how best to describe, not just military by others as well, but principally military. And there wasn't a sufficient shove, I think, to push it in that direction. Um, My own view is that they would have found that although a certain number of senior figures in the military despised Wilson, um they would not have been um um happy or confident in replacing the queen's government uh, as a result of illegal acts so i think that in many senses it was precisely that britain still had a monarchy that helped to keep the situation Um, as it was. Now, obviously, there were other monarchies of that period had coups. The most obvious one is Greece in the 1960s, but I'm not sure that British uh, political figures would have rather seen themselves as operating on the model of Greece.
0: Quite. Did uh, the UK gain anything from joining the common market in 1973?
2: <laughs> Gosh, you really—I'd think I'd rather talk about cricket. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, um, did the UK gain anything joining the Common Market in 1973? Uh, listeners ought to know that I have in no way been warned that any of these questions are going to come up. Um, well, put it like this: um, the 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 problem if they'd remained outside the common market in in that period would not have been particularly excessive. They neither gained nor lost anything particularly. In other words, Britain heat hits an enormous public finance crisis in the mid 70s as you may know inflation goes up to 25 percent need to turn to the imf for a for a major loan facility being in the european economic community at that point didn't help britain being outside it wouldn't have helped it or hurt it either so in some respects i would say that the eec in that period Um, was still, and that's largely to do with the way in which de Gaulle had had weakened any federalist inclinations within it at that period, the EC was not too terrible a threat. I think it did a lot of harm to Britain's links with its former Dominion partners, particularly Australia and New Zealand. Um, But, you know, America was not looking at such an attractive ally. American listeners may have heard of Richard Nixon, but more interestingly, they may have heard not have heard of uh, uh, prices and wages uh, controls. You know, America didn't look as though it was doing brilliantly. And in that context, possibly, it was wise to keep other alliances uh, in a good state. My own view for what it is worth is that it wasn't actually necessary to join uh, the EEC at that period. Um, but. You know, that's what they did. I think it starts to hit more problems from the late 80s. And it's from the late 80s that, and in particular, I've discussed this in a book on Britain and Europe, which I hope you've read. Um, It's the failure of the um, French socialists, particularly Delors, um, which leads them, having failed to push through socialism in France, in a way one-state socialism, because and Mitterrand having to change policy, they then try and, as it were, do much of that through the European context. And from then on, I think there are problems. And each time there are difficulties in Europe, then, and you've seen it most recently, the current COVID crisis, then the European Commission endlessly is trying to push through an, an additional ratchet in cooperation and i don't think that was brilliantly in britain's interest, but I, I have to tell you i think there was a lot of mess that the british can't blame on the european union i don't think the the uh, the difficulties created by establishing a separate government in scotland uh, really derives from the um, you know being a member of the uh, european union um what i would say is that once the british had decided not to join the euro and as well they also didn't join schengen and all the, they were going to be a semi-detached member of the european project and in a way um what the referendum meant was a different stage of being semi-detached now that may not be what enthusiasts or opponents of brexit wish to hear in other words you know, we've left the European Union. We're still a semi-detached part of Europe. We're a member of NATO. Uh, we have, we are a member of lots of other organizations. And we have a lot of trade and financial links with continental Europe. So we're still a semi-detached part of Europe. We were a semi-detached part of Europe when we were a member of the European Union. And, you know, we were clearly never going to join the euro. And I didn't think there was much chance of us joining Schengen. So I think that the actual... Wariness about the attraction to Britain um, has been there uh, much more strongly than people who are remainers might like to uh, argue, with the important exception of Scotland. I think it's fair to say that Scottish nationalism has always assumed in recent decades, we're not going back to Celtic nostalgia here, uh, that it would be part of a European Union project. And I think that 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 is an important um, cause of tension um, within the future of uh, of, of the United Kingdom.
0: Did Theresa May, like Gordon Brown before her, suffer from the curse of being too experienced to be a successful prime minister? Uh, the other people who have had this curse were, of course, Eden and Chamberlain uh, in the 20th century. And when I say too experienced, I mean experienced in one particular portfolio. In the case of uh, May, she was a little over six years at the home office, and that was the only office she ever held. In the case of Brown, he was 10 years. I think that's a record for the 20th and perhaps the 19th century, and perhaps even going back to uh, Pelham in the mid-18th century for a chance for the exchequer. Um, And, of course, in the case of Eden, he was 10 years at the Foreign Office before becoming Prime Minister.
2: Yes, I think that's a very, very interesting question. I mean, my own view is that... um, Theresa May has been much underrated. I think she understood a lot of the problems and issues in British society. I think her uh, focus on what was uh, what was going wrong for a large trance of society was important. I think she had a very strong uh, commitment to public service. She had voted um for uh remain. That she took the view that uh, all the political parties had pledged themselves to accept the will of the electorate and that therefore it was her job to bring through Remain. She had a very strong tradition of Christian public service and public duty and a very strong sense of honour and um, I think that, you know, it's fair to say that uh, no scandal is attached to her at all, whereas it would would that we could say that of all our prime ministers since 1945. Um, so I think that actually May had a lot of skills, but I think she was unpopular in the parliamentary party. I think there was a degree of misogyny there. I think that... Um, there were other people who wanted to be prime minister and it proved extraordinarily difficult to get a compromise that would be passable through parliament now obviously the the disaster was that um she went to the uh, for a general election when she didn't need to have one because she saw that as hopefully going to weaken her conservative opponents and it had the opposite effect and after that i think she was in a very difficult position but she kept going and it has to be said that if you look at whom the alternatives were and what the alternatives were both within the conservative party and more broadly in british politics In 2018 and 2019, you know, it's terribly easy to throw stones at uh, Theresa May. Uh, It's worth considering um, what would have happened in some of the other scenarios that were possible. As far as uh, Gordon Brown is concerned, and Eden, incidentally, as Chamberlain. I mean, they were all, in a way, uh, tripped up by events. I mean, Chamberlain uh, would probably, if there hadn't been World War II or Adolf Hitler had been killed in World War I, uh Chamberlain would probably have gone on to win the 1940 general election with a solid majority and, uh, you know, British society by the late 30s had was coming out very well from the depression uh, I think he would have been you know a very successful prime minister I don't think Eden had the strength of character that Chamberlain had I don't think he had the strength of purpose i think he was a weaker man um so i'm not sure that you know even if if suez hadn't come along i'm not sure that eden would have been a successful prime minister that's my reading of that situation and gordon brown i don't think he was a particularly steady personality um he certainly was a very uh faction ridden uh in the sense that he was riding the faction. Uh, figure within Labour, Um, and um, I think it's fair to say that um, he had very little charisma, um, and I'm not convinced that he was anywhere near as good as a Chancellor of the Exchequer. That he presented himself as, um, and I'm not sure that I should be saying this because, of course, Gordon Brown had a history doctorate, and we at least have that in common. Uh, although, be the classic British habit, because he doesn't call himself Doctor Brown. Um, the, um, but no, I don't think uh, Brown was a was a great prime minister.
0: Uh, perhaps uh, the key question uh, for the period of time covered by the book is um, one formulated by uh, the French um, famous writer and historian, uh, academic Raymond Aron. Uh, and asking this question, I should point out for the, to the audience that um, by um, family background, I'm 37.5% Italian. The question that Aron posed was, quote, why do the British go from being Romans to Italians?
2: <laughs> um, well, yes. I think uh, I would say the same, but in fact, I'll tell you an interesting thing. I've I've lectured several times, quite a few times in Japan, and Japanese uh, foreign service people are usually very sort of circumspect in what they say, but all of them who've served in London have said how disappointed they are that Britain has become, during their period of office and time, a less decorous, measured society, one that's dirtier and more vulgar. So I think there are serious flaws and faults in British society. Uh, I find them quite depressing. Britain, of course, is not alone in those. Um, But I think it um, has gone in those directions. My own concern, I suppose, is both on behalf of Uh, the country as a whole, because I'm disappointed about these developments, but also I'm very concerned about a separate issue, which is, although it's an interlinked issue, which is this, that you could be a depressive about the general situation and still have a sort of view at the end of, to use another French writer instead of Aron, uh, Voltaire, the idea that you can cultivate your garden, or in my case, sit in it, and just enjoy, <laughs> and just enjoy it there, being there. But the point is, and the problem is, that I'm not convinced that the developments in British society are, and particularly political and public culture are ones in which people are willing to have the necessary tolerance for the views of others. And I find it very disappointing in the extreme to see how, over particularly in the last year, uh, long-term trends in terms of the way in which institutions such as the universities, which are now many of which are particularly malign in their attitudes to nation's history and nation's culture uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation which seems to be anything other than a sort of a, but you know it's a sort of virtue signalling organisation I think that there is less of a tolerance of people's uh, diversity of views and I find that very disappointing I, you know, I don't imagine that people are going to be convinced for a second by my uh, my, uh, in, you know, my uh, observations, but I would like to have the space and peace to be able to think things through without, uh, uh being as it were receiving obloquy um and also uh, one would like to feel that one was able to express one's views to see them occasionally published to see them occasionally uh mentioned in the media and so on and i think uh we've moved in a very sad direction there is a sort of mono culture that which is very strong and if you try and offer Um, differences of opinion uh, people shout at you and I don't care about people shouting at me but I do care about the possibility of not being able to express oneself and that does worry me so I think it's not so much that we're Italians because in Italy and I you know I've written the history of Italy I've been to Italy in many cases many cases Italy as you will know OK, there is confusion and a degree of chaos there, but there is also the diversity of opinion. You can be a communist in Italy. You can be on the right in Italy. You could be in the center in Italy. You can have all sorts of views in Italy um, and publish accordingly. What worries me in Britain is that we will have a chaotic and incompetent society increasingly poor society in relative terms but at the same time one that is growingly intolerant of those who don't uh, subscribe to the dominant norms and that i think is very unattractive
0: if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book what would it be
2: the the well (laughs) i've That's, again, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, I actually think something we've not really talked about, Charles, which is I do think that the chapter on the environment uh, is very important, both on the natural environment and on the built environment. I found that a fascinating chapter to research, just as I found the section on culture fascinating to research. So what I like to do with each book, as you correctly say, I've written many books, I like with each book to set myself a new challenge of mastering a new body of literature and then trying to fit it in and trying to look for interleavings, but also for contrast, because life isn't always a matter of everything fitting in, and any historian that tells you that it is is an idiot. Um, so I would say that uh, I, the the changes in the natural and built environment, as well as in the nature of society and culture are fascinating. And as you know, we've not, you know, you ambushed me on cricket, but we could have discussed food, for example. I was very interested in contemplating and thinking about the nation's cuisine, but that wasn't my excuse for many meals.
0: <laughs> well, on that amusing observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Jeremy.
2: Many thanks indeed, Charles.